0: One of those phrases that you see on telly and stuff like that, that you hear a lot more about in recent years, it feels like, is this phrase, life-changing, life-changing. You watch a quiz program on TV, don't you? And, uh, uh, and there's prize money. And the presenter says, it's life-changing money. Doesn't matter how much it is. It's always life-changing money. Uh, And so they say, well, what are you going to spend it on? What are you going to spend this life-changing money on? How's it going to change your life? Well, I often find myself wondering at that point, what if that was me? What if it was me who is in their shoes sitting or standing there at the uh, being able to ask a question uh, i regularly do a, a pub quiz with uh, with some others and and the life-changing prize is 10 pounds worth of bar vouchers but imagine that i was there facing a, a question for i don't know a hundred thousand pounds life-changing money It's not just money, though, that can change people's lives, is it? Or that we emphasize can change people's lives. We talk about life-changing encounters, a life-changing drug or medicine, a life-changing job, a life-changing opportunity, a life-changing relationship, pregnancy, being reunited with a loved one. All these things change lives. So... I guess the question that I'd like to ask you, and I'll give you a little bit of time to think about it as well, is this. What one thing would you change in your life? What one thing would change your life? Told you I'd give you a bit of time to think about it. I want you to keep that idea in mind, because what we're going to do is we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about a life changing moment from history, actually. Uh, and so come back with me to, uh, to John chapter five. Hopefully you have got your Bibles open page 1068 in the church Bibles, if you've got. And I say that this is a life changing moment in history because as it happens, archaeologists have actually found out where this exact incident took place. They discovered a pool in the north of Jerusalem, near a gate, surrounded by five colonnades, like little porches. They have discovered where this event took place 2,000 years ago. This is a life-changing event that happened in a real place to a real person who met Jesus. You see, don't we, Jesus was walking or heading into Jerusalem, Uh, He would have done it a few times uh, a year for particular festivals. And have a look in verse 3. He came to a certain place. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralysed. A mass of people who were all incapacitated in one way, shape, or form. Sheltering under the colonnades to avoid the hot sun. Now remember this is in the days before the NHS. Uh, There weren't doctors around who could uh, do the amazing things that doctors can do these days. They weren't on a really, really long waiting list. It was also before any welfare state. There was no disability living allowance or anything like that. There was nothing for carers. To be blind, to be lame, to be paralysed meant you probably had nothing. You couldn't work. You were a drain on society. You were a drain on your family to the point that they probably kicked you out. You were hopeless. You were regarded as no good to anyone. You were helpless. This here was a place of despair. A place of despair. But why were they gathered there? Why were these people all gathered together? You'd think that if they were going to try and get something out of life, then it'd be to beg. And so you think, well, actually, to max. This is kind of a little bit of economics, isn't it? So, to maximize your begging opportunity, you don't want to sit next to somebody who's also begging. You see, you want to spread out. But no, there was. A reason why they're all gathered there again have a look down and here we're going to look at the end of verse 3 but at the start you'll notice in your Bibles verse 4 isn't there it's a bit weird verse 4 uh, isn't there it's there in brackets if you notice in your Bibles with a little B next to it and the reason for that is because there are different manuscripts of John's Gospel some which are earlier some which are later and the earliest ones of John's Gospel that we think are the most reliable don't have verse four in it. We think this is probably added in as a, an explanation by a scribe later on. But if you notice in the really, really small print at the bottom, it says why these people were here. This is, if you like, a later addition for an explanation. It says this. They waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. That was the belief. Now, this this isn't saying that that's actually what happened, but that was their belief. We don't actually need verse 4 to help us understand or help us realise that that's what they were believing, that they might be miraculously healed if they get into the waters, because have a look at verse 7. Jesus talks to a man and the uh, man says this, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. They were all there because they thought that if they could get into that pool at the right time, their lives would be changed, that they would be healed. Just think what a dreadful place that must have been. What a sad place it must have been. The helpless, the hopeless, all gathered in one location, desperate for those waters to bubble up in the belief that if they were first in, their superstition would come in, they would be healed. It is superstition, isn't it? I have to say, it just breaks your heart. I want you to imagine this. Imagine the lame see the bubbles and they suddenly start scrambling over one another to get in first. The blind, on hearing the commotion, think, something must have happened, I must get in. There's a free-for-all. The paralysed just cry out and beg for someone to help them. But they were all desperate to escape their mess, all wanting to be fixed. I was trying to think about what a modern equivalent Of this might look like a place of desperation but also superstition I I wondered if maybe a betting shop at 11 o'clock in the morning might feel something like this desperation but superstition hope oh next one the next one will change everything Karen and I watched um, The Full Monty this week, and uh, I wonder if it felt like a job centre in the 1980s and 1990s around here, when the pits had closed. Absolute despair, desperate for something to change their lives. It might even feel like a job centre today. Places where people despair, places where they congregate, For a change in luck. And into that situation walks Jesus. He stops and he speaks to one of them. And the one he speaks to, have a look, verse 5, it says, he had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, verse 6, and learned that he had been in this condition, he asked him a question. You see, this conversation went on. Jesus learned that he'd been an invalid for 38 years we don't know the circumstances why he was disabled was he born that way was it an accident was it an illness that struck him down we don't know but he had been disabled for 38 years which in those days where life expectancy was just over 40 years was pretty much his whole life an entire lifetime of being incapacitated of being an invalid for pretty much his whole life he wouldn't have worked he would have relied on begging for food and drink he would have hung around here at the pool surrounded by others who were just as hopeless and helpless as him you might say in some ways that in human terms his life was over you might wonder if his life had ever started Jesus learns this from the man, and what does he say in verse 6? Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And you think to yourself, Jesus, like, come on. You've got this guy here, he's been there for 38 years, he's disabled, we've talked about his desperation, hopeless, helpless. Do you want to get well? It just feels like a crazy question, doesn't it? But Jesus doesn't or ask crazy questions. It might have been that this man had been in this condition for so long that he was accustomed to it. He was just used to it. Change actually was probably quite a fearful thing. It might be as well that he just thought, well, actually, yeah, there's no point. There's no point anymore. Totally, totally utterly hopeless. But what do we expect? We expect, yes, please, don't we? Yes, please, Jesus. If you've been around church circles for a while, you kind of know how these things happen, how these things work. Jesus says, do you want to be well? He goes, yes, Jesus. And you go, brilliant. There you go. Bang. But interestingly, that's not how the man answers, does he? Have a look in verse seven. We've already read it. He says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. Again, it's that superstition. His hope is that Jesus could just do a really small thing for him. Like help him into the pool at the right time. That's his best hope. But no, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus changes things completely, doesn't he? Jesus approached the man. Jesus engaged him in conversation. Jesus shows the man that he doesn't need a hand into the pool. Instead, the man needs Jesus. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He got up, picked up his mat and walked. Now I want again to pause briefly and I want you to imagine the situation, imagine the scenario. What happens next? I know we've read it, but what happens next? We've got a guy who's been there for 38 years, not been able to walk, and he's on his mat. Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk, and he does. What happens next? Well, what we imagine is, well, it's something like he starts jumping around. And maybe a bit of dancing, tears of joy, probably lots of hugging. Everyone there is going, this is amazing. Did you see what he did to that guy? That's not how the story goes, is it? The next thing we know, actually, is that the man is suddenly in trouble. Because he gets spotted by the religious leaders, doesn't he? It's there in verse uh, uh, verse. Nine. On the day which this took place, uh, it was a Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders said to the man he'd be healed, he suddenly gets he gets collared by the religious police. And the religious police shout, Sabbath! It's the Sabbath! And you're carrying your mat. He's suddenly in lots of trouble, isn't he? So what does he do? He's like, It's not my fault. It's not me, it's not my fault. It was it was the guy. The guy that healed me, he told me to carry my mat. You see, he tries to wheedle sort of his way out of the trouble with the religious police by saying it's not my fault, somebody else told me to do it. Now, from my experience, and I know that most of the kids are out the room, but, uh, but saying someone else told me to do it isn't generally the best defense when it comes to, uh, to, to trying to get out of trouble. I'm sure I've tried it once or twice before. And maybe my parents would be able to give you examples, but I can't remember any of them, of course. But you see, the first opportunity or the first sign of trouble, and he is grassing on the guy who just healed him. That, to me, was one of the shocks of this story. But notice, too, the religious leaders say, who's that? Who is the man that you were talking about? Who is the man that healed you? And he had no idea who Jesus was the man's life had been transformed because Jesus healed him and he didn't even stop to ask Jesus name he just got what he wanted didn't he he wanted to be made well and that's what Jesus gave him but he didn't stop to say thank you he didn't rush to hug Jesus he allowed Jesus to slip away into the crowds unnoticed it's a bit of a surprise I thought this week but the story doesn't end there. Next, we find a decision that this man has to face. Have a look at verse 14. Later, Jesus finds him at the temple and he says to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, I just want to have a, a very brief aside on this, because I think this is quite an important question. To We're probably all asking the same question. Which is about sin and sickness and that kind of stuff. So it isn't the main point of the talk, but I want to spend a couple of minutes on it. We might read this and think that Jesus is saying the man is unwell because he sinned. Okay, like there is a direct link between his sin and his sickness. And sometimes it can be that there is a direct link between sin and sickness or sin and suffering. Bad choices often lead to bad consequences. So an obvious example might be that if you drive under the influence of alcohol, you're more likely to have an accident. Bad choices, bad consequences, sin, sickness can happen. It can also be that we can easily see how one person's sin can cause pain or suffering for somebody else. So it's not difficult. That's why if I were to, for example, and I won't do this, Uh, But if if I were suddenly to, I don't know, got to bury him and punch him. Exactly. Exactly. That's the response we're looking for. (laughs) Don't do it. I won't do it. But my sin leads to his suffering. You can see the direct link. Okay. So there is a way in which we can see that that is the case. But the Bible very rarely draws a direct line between our own sin and our own sickness even though people at the time did so just a couple of pages on in john John chapter 9 jesus meets a man born blind and his disciples say to him why is this guy blind is it because his parents sinned or because he sinned and jesus says no it's neither it's neither it's not because there's a direct line between sin and sickness or or alternatively there's a a bit in luke's gospel where a, a building had collapsed and basically people are like well they're worse than anybody else and jesus says no In both instances, actually, what the point of that suffering is, is that it's a sign of something else. It's a a bigger picture. So the point is that Jesus isn't giving the man an explanation for his illness. He's not saying you're disabled because of your sin. What he is saying is that that suffering is a warning of something bigger. That there's something worse than human pain, worse than earthly suffering, I hope that makes sense because that's crucial to understand what's going on here. Okay? Everything that takes place on earth points to something bigger and more important elsewhere. C.S. Lewis described suffering as God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I think, just, just get our heads around this, suffering is a sign that the whole of the world is broken that the entire world is broken by sin everyone's sin not just my sin but everyone's sin so the man's disability was a sign to everybody that there was a problem with the world and jesus comes in and he heals the man he deals with the symptom of the brokenness of the world and that in itself is a sign of something much bigger okay so this is the key We've got here the man's suffering is a small picture of the whole of the world that's suffering. And Jesus comes in and he heals the man's suffering as a sign that he's dealing with the whole of the world's problems. The sign points to something much bigger. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Great. If it doesn't, you can talk to me uh, afterwards. But, but that small healing of one man points to the bigger story of God dealing with the brokenness of the whole world caused by human sin. He's recreating our world without sin, without the effects of sin, and he's doing it through Jesus. And that is the world we all want. Earlier on, I got you to imagine what one thing you could change about your life. I want you to think about it again. I don't know what it was that transformation a new home a new holiday a healing heartache end of heartache that man experienced all of those kind of things his life was changed and we want that same thing but the question is do you want it on a small scale or do you want it on a global scale do you want the small thing or do you want the thing that that small sign points to the reality the bigger Reality. So when Jesus says to the man, see you're well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. He's not talking about the past. He's actually talking about the future. He's saying. Do you want to be part of a world? A new world where there is no effects of sin? Do you want just the small thing or do you want the big thing? Well, if you want to be a part of a world that isn't affected by sin, then get ready for it now. Stop sinning. Get ready for that world that is to come. Start living now as if you're living for eternity and keep living that way. That's what he's saying. So in the one sense, there's the stop sinning or something worse may happen. But actually, if you stop sinning, then something greater will happen. That's what Jesus is promising. And that's the decision that's facing him. So what does he do? What do you expect him to do? You expect him to, well, I don't know, probably skulk away and go, okay, Jesus, whatever. But what does he do? Well, have a look. I think this actually perfectly shows us what sin is. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. He's just grasped on Jesus already, and now he's done it a second time. You got a problem with me? Have a problem with Jesus? You see, he wanted to get rid of Jesus, didn't he? Uh, when we read this for the first time, we're surprised, but what we realize is that he was perfectly happy, just being healed he didn't want Jesus demands he didn't want to live for that new world no he wanted to be fixed but he didn't want the fixer he got what he wanted from Jesus and now it was more convenient to report Jesus to the authorities that's a staggering thing he actually wasn't cornered by the authorities this time he wasn't in trouble with them he sought them out so that he could get rid of Jesus that's his betrayal and friends I think this actually tells us what sin is it's not the actions it's not doing bad stuff that we often think that sin is it's sort of seven deadly sins or whatever equivalent you might have in your head but I think it also defines not just what sin is but also what it is to be a good person you know sometimes you ever have that those conversations with people I'm a good person Why would God be unhappy with me? I'm a good person. Well, this defines what good is. Sin at its very core is that we want God's blessing without God himself. Adam and Eve wanted to rule God's world, but without God. The man wanted Jesus to heal him, but he didn't want Jesus to bother him after that. Uh, Just on uh, the next page, chapter 6. We can see Jesus feeds the 5,000, then in verse 26, it says, well, you're only following me because you ate the bread. What you want is this stuff that I can give you. You don't want me. We all know we're prone to want God's blessing without God himself. You see, people want the sign without the savior. The human heart is easily led. You know, I I reckon that if God answered everyone's prayers, if he was like Aladdin's genie and gave you three wishes, churches would be full for a couple of days. They'd be full for a couple of days because churches would be like that superstition that that guy wanted right at the start. Basically, get what you want, but once you start thinking, well, this is going to change me, you disappear. We want God's stuff without God himself. That is sin. That is the problem with the world. Sin is to enjoy the gift without the giver. This story perfectly illustrates, though, how foolish that might be. We ask ourselves, how could somebody so quickly turn their back on the guy that had healed them, had given them a lease of life? Just think, who's the most generous person that you know? Then think about what are the gifts that they've given you? What are the things they've given you? You wouldn't want the stuff without the person, because the stuff is only a smaller part of the person's riches. The stuff is only an expression of the giver's generosity imagine that really generous uncle grandparent whoever it is you wouldn't want life without them and yet ultimately that's what we choose it's foolish but actually it's not just foolish it's downright rude The world and everything in it is an expression of the beauty of the one who made it. You see, it is not difficult to see how wanting to live in God's world without God, without His generosity, without His compassion, without His goodness, you see, that's just, it's foolish, it's rude. None of us would want to do that, would we? Well, friends, we like to think we're different, but at times we're not. (laughs) There's still a tendency in all our hearts to act in this way. We often focus on the stuff more than the one who lovingly gave it to us. There's a tendency for all of us to live without gratitude to God in our hearts. But as I finish, I want us to look at a bigger picture and a better future. This idea of death uh, and life. And to do it, we're just going to scan very, very quickly uh, through a bit more of John's gospel. So Jesus speaks, verse 17. He says this, my father is at work to this very day and I too am working. Verse 19, whatever the father does, the son does also. Verse 21, just as a father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to those whom ple- he's pleased to give it. Verse 23, whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. Verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Uh, we've got a diagram coming up on the, uh, on the screen here. This basically explains what's going on in this passage. The, uh, the challenge is there, isn't it? Stop sinning or something worse may happen. What is it the guy does? Well, he chooses to sin because he wants what God gives without wanting Jesus. And the consequence of that is something worse than sickness, which is death. But on the other hand, what we've got is we've got an option, a thought stop sinning what would that look like honoring god as the giver of all good gifts which leads to life knowing god loving and enjoying jesus forever you see ironically enough jesus is the one who offers knife but have a look at verse 18 it says this for this reason they tried all the more to kill jesus Later in the gospel, we see that they succeed in putting him to death after someone else betrays Jesus to them. But through that death comes life. Jesus' death brings life because as he's raised from death, he shows us the reality of that bigger and better restored world. A new world based around relating to and knowing God because that is life. In John 17, it says this. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is enjoying that recreated world without sin, without sickness, where everything is made whole, where everything is right. But at its core, at its heart. It's enjoying those things as we know Jesus, as we know God, as we honor him. Life, true life is knowing, loving, honouring honouring and enjoying the giver of all good gifts and enjoying everything he gives us. That's what this disabled man turned his back on. He chose death rather than life because he wanted the temporary rather than the eternal. I wonder where we're at this afternoon. Maybe we wish that we could have encountered Jesus in that way so that he could have fixed our broken lives. So he could sort out our problems, so he could mend our broken hearts and feed our earthly appetites. Well, I'd like you to imagine that that happens. I'd like you to imagine that you did meet Jesus on that day. And that he offered to make you well, because in John chapter 20... John says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I just repeat that. By believing you may have life in his name. It's as if Jesus says to all of us this afternoon, do you want to be made well? The question is, do you want Jesus just to fix your problems, sort out your life here and now? But that would lead to death. Or would you choose another way? Trusting him, loving him, honoring him as the giver of all good gifts that we may know life and know him eternally. Or if that's what we're after, then Jesus warns us to stop sinning. That's a warning actually for us all now. But what does that look like? That looks like a prayer that says, Lord Jesus, help me to live in your world and to know you now to know you today, to thank you for your goodness, to honour you as God, to trust you as saviour. Sorry for the way that I've lived, but thank you very much for the beautiful promise that by believing, I can have life in your name. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, sometimes it's, it's hard when we read examples of people who've got the wrong end of the stick or done whatever it is that they shouldn't have done. Please help us to heed the warning of this man who preferred the stuff that you give rather than you yourself. Please protect us from that. Protect us from that ingratitude for the offer of life. Protect us from almost this foolishness of turning down the offer. Uh, Please help us by your spirit to be those who daily say sorry, but also daily trust your goodness to us. And so we pray that we would be those who enjoy life in your name forever. Amen.